Man, you got to see three handsome people in a row. You guys are lucky. <laughs> I want to say good morning. I hope this week was fantastic, and I hope the coming week is even better than last week. And if it's not, make it better than last week, okay? Um, today, as you can tell, pastors Albert and Amanda Mitchum are not here. Uh, they are celebrating their 30th anniversary. That's huge! So listen, when, they, when you do see them again, or if you want to hit them up, don't do it right now. Don't do it now. Wait till like midweek. But shoot them texts, shoot them messages saying congratulations. Because when one celebrates, we all celebrate. So let's celebrate with them. Because in today's day and age, it's not shocking to see a marriage last two years. 30. 30 years. They, it's awesome. So thank you, Pastor Sister Amanda, for showing us how to do that kind of stuff and also for being just here for a more, large chunk of those years. Majority of those years married, you've been here at this church. So wherever the camera is, I think it's up there. Thank you. <laughs> because they are not here, you actually get to see three of us today. For those of you that are like, oh, thank God. Shame on you. <laughs> not just him. I'm kidding. I don't want to spoil who else will be speaking. I'm sure most of you figured it out by now. But trust me, they've got doozies. They've got some doozies. Pastor asked us to share a scripture that meant a lot, that means a lot to us, that made a difference in our lives, and he wanted us to share a bit of our stories. Uh, it's important to talk about these things. It's important to talk about the things that God has done for us because when we do, we step out of isolation. That's one of the enemy's biggest tactics is to make us feel all alone and to get us all alone. That's one of the biggest tactics. We are made overcomers by the blood of the Lamb, and the, which Jesus is the Lamb of God. Blood of the Lamb, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That's, Jesus did that part. We're made overcomers by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, which means we have to do our part. We share our stories, and we testify about what God has done. And who knows, maybe someone else needs to hear what we have to say as well. 2 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. When we share the gospel, when we share our stories, when we share the things that Jesus brought us through, we help each other in all of those things. We help each other realign to God. We help each other better understand what the Bible says. We help each other think, speak, and act more like Jesus. We help complete each other. We help equip ourselves to do what God has told us to do. It adds, uh, it, it adds to us, it profits us to share our stories, and we, not just here in this building, but all of Christians, we need to band together now, today more than ever, in a world that is more divisive and only growing more and more divisive, we need now more than ever to be together, and we need to share our stories. So this morning, you'll be hearing three of our stories. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you touch right now, touch this moment. It is by no mistake anybody is here. It is divine appointment only that somebody showed up today. You knew exactly where we'd be before we ever thought about what we're going to wear today. So God, I pray that you'll touch this moment. Let me speak what I need to speak. Let, let them speak what they need to speak. Let everybody hear what they need to hear. God, let every single person get something out of this. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been going to church since I was a wee lad. Wee lad. Uh, I remember inviting Jesus into my heart at eight years old at church camp, and I've never looked back. <laughs> at age 13, my youth pastor at my church called a Christ Sanctuary. He moved away, 
and it actually crushed me. I was pretty attached to the youth pastor. So I started going to church at Jefferson Avenue Church of God in Huntington, West Virginia. We started going there because my family went there. My cousins, who are my age, went there. Also, I had met someone at church camp. I've been going to that church camp since eight years old, as I mentioned. I met someone there who changed my life, and his name was Rod Justice, and he was there in Huntington. Over the years there in Huntington, God started working on me. I eventually started doing pre-service for the youth. I sang on the worship team for the youth, and as young, this was all as young as age 15. I think it was 14 when I started doing all this stuff. By the age of 16, 17, I was a student leader for the youth. I had a microphone in front of 19-year-olds, and we call them, there was a lot of what we called street kids, which means their parents didn't come to church. They were picked up specifically on the church van, or they walked. And Rod, and I love, and I've said this to him, so nobody be shocked with what I'm about to say. Rod was dumb enough to give a 16-year-old Israel Smith a microphone in front of them. It was a big learning curve. <laughs> uh, 16, 17 student leader, uh, that's how old I was. When I graduated high school, I went to Marshall University. I wish I had graduated. I tell the teens all the time, don't be me, be better than me. But I wish I had graduated, but I, moved, I went to Marshall to be closer to my church. By the age of 19, there were two of us handling what we called the front half of youth service. Basically, everything before worship we called the front half. As soon as worship started, we're on the back half of youth service. Because we did all the goofy stuff, the fun stuff, the announcements, the offering. We did all that stuff. And then, including announcements, the welcome, anything like that. If we showed a video, then we did worship and then preaching, and that was it. And listen, some of those Wednesday night services I had in youth service, I don't call it class because we didn't have class. We had church. And those were some of the most amazing services I've ever been a part of. By the age of 19, there were two of us handling that front half everything before worship. Between the ages of 17 to 22, when this all kind of happened, I was starting to morph in to who I am today. Believe it or not, some of you will think I'm lying, in high school I was not that outgoing. I was kind of shy. Someone just laughed. You think I'm lying. Uh, I wasn't that outgoing. I, I would talk. I, I did well in like a group, a small group in front of me, but I could never have thought of speaking in front of more than 20 people. Uh, I just so bad wanted to try out and audition for the, the class play because it was always funny. It was always fun. You see them, you're like, that looks fun when you're in fifth grade and you go to the high school and you see it. And then I went to do it, and I was like, nah. <laughs> I just couldn't. I couldn't do it in front of anybody. I was, I was nervous. Also, I was picked on a little bit. Not like wedgies, swirlies, stuffed inside lockers. Okay, not that kind of stuff. But I was just picked on. I was the Christian kid who didn't drink, who didn't party, who didn't cuss. I was the nerd. I was the Bible nerd, okay? That's, that's what I was. I had those, back in the day, there was, everything was graphic tees. I don't know if anybody remembers that, all the graphic tees. And they made the cheesiest church shirts. <laughs> Does anybody remember those? They made, like, they put the Mountain Dew logo, and they said, like, just do it, and it had, like, Jesus on it. They, they you know, they, they made fun of other, they, they put other stuff on there to kind of mimic it. It was, it was cheesy. It was cheesy shirts, but they were fun. And that's all they sold at Winterfest was a bunch of these, like, graphic cover tees. Uh, it's like the Walmart section <laughs> at Winterfest, but that's what we all wore. Anyway, that's the kind of stuff I wore. Um, I had friends in high school, but most of them would eventually graduate before me. Uh, my Huntington friends, 45 minutes away from where I lived, were turning into my family, though. By my senior year, I had traveled doing ministry with Rod at the Church of God camps in Maine, Ohio, South Georgia, 
There's a few more. I just can't remember them. We also did a missions trip, and this one was really cool, to Navajo Nation in New Mexico. I was, I was 15 on that one. And we did an in-state missions trip to help with flood relief in southern West Virginia. I was already sold out to church and my church family by the age of, like, 16. That's, that's where my friends were. Like, I had friends in school, and I loved my friends in school. There was a few of us Christian friends in school. My school, I don't remember it being very Pentecostal. The Christians were either Catholic or Baptists. So I was the oddball. <laughs> so all my friends were 45 minutes away in a whole other state. <laughs> all this being said, I was completely unaware. I didn't know who I was. I mentioned that I shared a lot of responsibilities with another person. Uh, that person, his name is Matt Hutchinson. Matt very good friend of mine, still is a very good friend of mine, and he is one of the most talented people I have ever met in my life. If it's humanly possible, he would figure out how to do it. And he's humble about it. He currently serves as a student pastor in Christ Temple Church in Huntington, West Virginia. Everybody loves Matt. There's not one person I've met who's like, I don't like Matt. He's magnetic. People are just drawn to him. He was the local celebrity. If you were around Matt, you were cool. And as much as it was an honor to share the stage with, we would be up there together doing these things. It was so hard to be up there next to Matt. As much as it was so cool, it was, it was tough. It was really hard to share the stage with Matt because he just, he just soaked in all the spotlight. It was crazy. Now, I know I've been talking about my time serving as a youth leader, and I know it's easy to see that as just the youth. But listen to me. We ran over 100 people. Rod Justice, in that time, we were running over 100 people. Yes, some of that were youth workers, but we ran over 100 people. I think at one point we hit 100, about 112, 115. People, Wednesday night, these are kids. 80, 80 to 85 of these were teenagers. And if you've never been in a room full of teenagers, they will eat you alive if you're not careful. <laughs> it was a big deal to be anything. If you got to take the offering and nothing else, that was huge. And, and I was super young with a mic in my hand, trying to survive on stage next to Matt Hutch. For the record, I will call him Matt Hutch or just Hutch for the rest of it. That's the same person. Nobody get confused there. Rod decided to move Hutch from the goofy stuff to just the serious stuff because he wanted people to know, he wanted the kids to know, Matt, he's going to be taken more serious now because uh, Matt is now the associate youth pastor. Rod actually named Matt Hutch the associate youth pastor. Matt went from tearing it up and just putting on a show before worship. I would try to mimic some of the dancing he did just to make the kids laugh. I cannot do it, but he can. He would do those things, but now Rod moved him to just the serious things. He's wanting the kids to realize, hey, this is your spiritual leader too, not just a goofball. I don't know what that says about me, but he moved Matt to that. That meant I'm going to do all the fun stuff by myself. What Matt and I had done together, I am now going to do it by myself. The first week that I did it, I mean, this was, I'm not making this up. This is the first week. I'm nervous. I'm terrified because now it's just me. There's no safety net. If I say something dumb, there's no one there to scoop me up immediately with the mic. I was not looking forward to filling his half of the shoes. And it was really like 20% me, 80% Matt. It's just me now. And I told you, sometimes, I know you may not believe it because some of them are your kids, but those teens can be mean. Kids are mean. Not my angel. Yes, your angel. He's mean. She's mean. I promise. If something stupid is done or said from stage, I mean a slight slip up with how you say something 
or you look or you wore something dumb that day. It will be brought up again and again and again and again. Well, listen, we were tough on each other, a little tougher. You know, you see the sitcoms where they all bust each other's chops a lot. And you guys think that's not real life. It was for us. And it's not as fun as you think. <laughs> so there I was, dealing with all that on top of covering for Matt, all this pressure. First week I did it, I step up and I start the pre-service all by myself. I say something like, hey, guys, welcome to Impact. I don't, I don't think I got that many words out. And there was this kid named Alex. He's sitting, there was two sections, but he was sitting right about where Mark, Brother Mark is right now. He's sitting right about there in comparison. He looks at, I didn't get one sentence out. He looks at me and says, I'm not making this up. Boo! We want Matt. I, boo! We want Matt. Crushed me. Actually, a few years earlier, I was struggling with finding out who I was. More so who I was in God's eyes, right? I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. What am I doing? And that would have crushed me had that happened a year or two earlier. I was working under Matt Hutchison, the greatest youth pastor of all time, Rod Justice. And having the two of them mentoring you in ministry, that's a lot of, that's a lot of pressure. Every time I do something remotely related to ministry, I feel that pressure. I do. Secret, shh, don't tell anybody. Part of the reason I pray, even if somebody else prayed, was I'm secretly praying, God, help me calm down. Help this be good. <laughs> Y'all don't know that. Shh, don't tell Israel. That day, <laughs> I didn't get two sentences out. Boo, we want Matt. Two, I didn't get two sentences out. I'm serious. I did not get two lines out. I said my first thing, boo, we want Matt. If this happened, like I said before, I would have been crushed because I was going through a bit of an identity crisis. I think we all do it around that age. I think that's fair to assume a lot of us will deal with that. Like I said, I was working with under the, the youth pastor of all youth pastors, and I was working under Hutch. And then there's me. There's, there's me. I was struggling with figuring out who I was. I tried to be more like Rod. I tried to do things how he did them. I tried to be more like Matt. I tried to do the, th the way he, the things, ugh, like that right there. That would have slaughtered me in Huntington. I tried to do the way he did it. And when I'd fail, I would beat myself up for it. They did this, and they were successful. I'm going to do this. And it wouldn't work. In addition to that, and I know this next part might come as a shocker, I like to talk. I like to run my mouth. That wasn't me in high school. That wasn't me in grade school. After I started to bloom into Israel Smith, into my personality out of high school, there were times that I hated who I was. I wish I didn't feel the need to always joke. I can't stand silence. There's a few people that have been on road trips with me. They know exactly what I'm talking about. I can't stand silence. I have to, I have to hear something. I wish I, didn't, uh, I wish I didn't feel the need to always joke sometimes because no one took me serious. On a side note, I'm fine with it now. I'll be the goofball. It ain't no big deal. There were times I wish I could just shut up. I would tell myself, you're not going to talk for three days. I wouldn't make it one. <laughs> it would work for maybe a day. I would frequently look inside and hate who I was. Somehow my personality made me feel alienated and alone because no one wanted to be around me. On a side note, I didn't write this down, but this is a quote I saw a couple years ago. Some people aren't your people. It says, I'm too much for some people. Well, those aren't your people. I'm too much for some people. Those aren't your people. 
just free advice. I don't know what happened when I was like 20 to 22, whatever age it was. Something just clicked. I, I know the head knowledge was there. Like, you don't, just, just be yourself, man. But I can't explain it other than something just clicked. I don't know what it was. But my job was to be Israel Smith. Boo! We want Matt. Because I had figured all that out, and I thank God I was pretty young when it happened, my response was, well, you're stuck with me. I looked right at Alex. Well, you're stuck with me. And I went on. I did not hesitate. I didn't even care. I know you want Matt. You get me. Because <laughs> it's my job to be me. It's your job to be you. Philippians 3 not only have I obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I learned that I have to move forward, press on to what God has for me what he has for me. And that, yes, you need to work on you. This is not up here saying don't ignore your flaws. Ignore your flaws and you'll be fine. No, you got to work on your stuff. you got to work on your flaws. you got to work that stuff out. That's just my personality. No, you got to work on that. You're not blunt. You're rude. Okay, work on that. <laughs> okay, you're not, a, you're, not, you're not fun and goofy. You're procrastinating and lazy, Israel. That one's, that one's for me. Work on that. I learned that I have to move forward and press on, though, in the things that I have that God has for me. And there is not any other person on this planet that can do it for me. I have to press forward. And there is no one in your life that can do it for you. There's no one in your life that can do it for you. You can't do it for your, you have to do it for yourself. If I want what God has for me, I have to press forward. If you want what God has for you, you have to press forward. It's our own races to run. I have to run my race. And we have to run the races that God built for us the way he built us. Pastor Paul Ray Farley, I know three people know who that is. He once said, he was this tall, he'd talk like this. If I'm out in left field, he said, if I'm out in left field, just leave me there. I loved it. I loved it. I never forgot that. I can't tell you what he preached the rest of that sermon. I can't remember it, but he said, if I'm out in left field, just leave me there. And the church clapped. I was like, that's good. And I just forever remembered it. And I'm going to quote one of the most well-known poets of all time. Today you are you that is truer than true. There was no one alive who was youer than you. Dr. Seuss. Today you are you that is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. While that is only a small portion of my story, what I went through, what I learned then, it helped me stay the course God wanted for me. And I'm doing it the best I can, but I'm doing it like Israel Ryan Smith. morning promise of victory okay so um for for what I'm going to go through this morning um so, some of you that know me already know it's going to be complicated all right I, it's difficult to simplify things for me I, I struggle with that but we're going to start in Zechariah chapter 4 
um, verses 1 through 7. I'll read through them real quick. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me, as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick of gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof, with shoutings, crying, grace, grace unto it. So a lot of things happen in that passage, a lot to unpack there. The first point I want to make, which, which really made this scripture stand out to me and, um, and help me along in a lot of areas of my life, is the fact that when the vision was given to Zechariah, he was waking out of his sleep. So it wasn't something that he was given in a dream and he had to wake up, try to remember the dream, and then interpret it. If you've ever tried to remember a dream when you got up, you know it's almost impossible. So he had to be awake for it, and as the angel talked with him, he, he asked him, what do you see? Do you understand what you see? Things like this. He had to make sure that not only did he receive the vision, but he understood it, so he would be able to apply it when necessary. Now, there were several times when the Lord appeared to people in dreams, and those are important, but I feel like whenever you're waking out of your sleep and given a vision, there's a level of um, urgency, a sense of urgency associated with that that's a little bit different than when somebody receives a dream and has to act on it. And it's at those times when, like, you get to a point of doubt or you're on the fence about something, not sure if God really called you to do something, not sure if he really laid it on your heart or if it's just something that you feel like you want to do. In those times of, of difficulty, in those times of doubt, that's when you need a word with a sense of urgency that will tell you exactly what you need to know and get you on the right track. So I got to a, a certain point in, in my life where I realized the things that were inside of me, the visions that were inside of me, the things that I seen for myself and for my family, they weren't for just me and they weren't from just me because they were a lot bigger than just me. A lot of times when we want to do things, there's, a, there's like a, um, a, uh, a personal drive behind it just so you can feel a sense of accomplishment or just so you can have something done. But the things that were inside of me, they were a lot bigger than what I could accomplish on my own. And I didn't quite understand how I was supposed to get it done. There were times when I wanted to stop doing certain things. I wanted to quit, but I couldn't. And that's the burden of the Lord. Whenever there's something on your heart and you just can't shake it, like over and over, it keeps coming up. You can't get away from it. This is the type of situation that you find yourself in when you begin to doubt it, that you need a, a word of encouragement, a word that has a sense of urgency associated with it. And in context, this is what's happening here in this passage. So a little bit of background, Israel found themselves in captivity again. It was something that, that happened to them a lot. It was almost like a hobby at a certain point. They would mess up, get, get brought into captivity, and then they would have to be brought out 
And when they were brought out, oh, guess what? We got to rebuild the temple again. It's like, how many times are we going to have to rebuild this temple? But I, I feel like what, what's so important about that, especially the, the rebuilding of the temple, is that God was willing to assess however many times it took until they got it right. He wasn't going to stop. He, yeah. So each time they, they failed, each time they failed and they were dragged away from where they were supposed to be and the temple had lost its former glory, God stepped in without hesitation. And he delivered them. And not only did he deliver them, but he gave them a way for the temple to be rebuilt. A couple of, of, of other points here is that, number one, the vision was given to Zechariah for Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel actually means scattered in Babylon like a foreigner in a in a a, for, a foreigner in a strange land or confusion. So you think about the, the substantial odds that were against them. In their situation, that was their mountain. They knew they had to rebuild this temple. They knew what came next because they were familiar with the process. But how is it going to be possible this time? And that's why it's so important that the vision that was given to them contained the candlestick that had the bowl with the oil in it and the two olive trees right next to it. The oil would never run out, right? And the other thing is that he specifically told them, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The first statement there, not by might. So it's not just going to be by the will and the strength of a bunch of people coming together to get it done. And it's not going to be by power. It's not going to be by the will or the strength of one individual to get it done either. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. There are some things that you have to do. And it may take a lot of people around you. But how do you cause those people around you to act? How do you cause them to buy the vision? How do you cause them to have the strength, the encouragement to go on and follow you on this journey? It's going to be by the words that you speak related to the vision that's inside of you, covered with the anointing of God. The oil always represented the anointing, right? And knowing that what he saw was a candlestick with a bowl that had the oil in it and the two olive trees next to it, you know that anointing is never going to run out. So no matter what it is, how long it's going to take, the power of God is always going to be there to get you through it. Another thing I, I want to point out, too, is the fact that not only was it a, an olive tree, but it were, there were two olive trees there. So this is where, it, for me, it kind of starts to tie together. It comes full circle. So when you think about the work of Christ and what his responsibility is, he's got two jobs, right? He's a king and he's a priest, okay? And when he gave his life for us when he sacrificed himself in our stead he made a way for us to be able to be filled with the spirit of god okay and he's providing for us an oil that never runs out so as as we continue on our journey and we face certain things whether it's by our own fault or people around us, we just got caught up, mixed in with the wrong crowd. Regardless of what happens, God has always, he has always made a way for us to be able to come back to him and have the temple, your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, rebuilt over and over and over again.
So to tie this together and, and show you how it applies specifically to my life, I got, I got two things I want to talk about. The first one is like I, I can imagine how the children of Israel felt because I grew up in the church. My mom always took me to church. I was always there. We were there Wednesday nights, Thursday nights. Anytime there was a revival, we had to go. It didn't matter. Something was going on at the church, we had to be there. Once I got old enough to make my own decisions, though, I figured I knew a better way, right? Because we always do, especially when you're like 17, 18. That's when you got it all figured out. See, so <laughs> when you're young, you're trying to figure it out. In your teens, you got it all figured out. And then after your teens, you're trying to figure it out again. That's how it works. <laughs> so so I, f I felt like I had it all figured out. And I found myself in captivity to sin. That's how it works. You always think, well, I'm going to just try this. This seems pretty cool. You know, these, these are some cool people I can hang out with. Then you go to that house, the next thing you know, you're trapped in Babylon. You can't get out. And when you do get out, now it's time to rebuild the temple again. But again, like I said in the beginning, all of that work is not just for a vision that is just for you yourself. It impacts so many other people around you, and you don't even know it until it starts to come to fruition. So, finally, I don't know, um, seven, eight years go by, finally get my life back together. God has helped me rebuild the temple, right? <laughs> so, so not, not long after that, though, I faced another challenge. And this was a mountain in my life, not just my life, but my wife's too. It was a mountain that we had to face together through immaculate conception facilitated by the court system. We ended up with three additional kids, okay? <laughs> so now, now we have a serious challenge that we have to face, and it's such a huge mountain. We had just got to a point where we were comfortable in our relationship. We were comfortable in serving God. Our kids were old enough to get up and get their own cereal in the morning, so we didn't have to worry about that. Next thing you know, we got to start over from ground zero. What a struggle. But I look back, and as I was putting this sermon together, I thought about it. That's 10 years ago now. So what I thought was a huge mountain, as long as God is willing to help you rebuild that temple, and that oil never runs out, anything that you thought was a mountain will become a plain. And you will come out carrying the headstone from it. Thank you. I'm going to be taking my text from Luke 22. The pastor asked us to pick out a, uh, one of our favorite texts, and I don't really know that I have a favorite scripture because I love the word, and, and a lot of it is my favorite. And then, of course, there's just times that uh, there's some scriptures that help me through life, and then there's other scriptures that got me through this point in my life. So there's a lot of favorite scriptures that I have, but I'll go ahead and um, begin reading it. I thought it was going to be up on the board. Luke 22 and 31. 
And this seems like a weird scripture to have as someone's favorite scripture. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, not that I enjoy being sifted because I, I don't. I know that James tells us to count it all joy when we fall into divers' temptations and uh, because it's going to work our patience and our patience is going to end up making us perfect. And I, I understand that. And once I'm in the sifting, I start to realize that and, and go through that in my mind. But I never look forward to actually being sifted as wheat. Uh, but I understand that every believer, that every faith-filled believer in Christ is going to go through a season in their life where, you're, where your faith is going to be tested. And the comforting part of this scripture is in verse 32. When Jesus said, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. So what that tells me is that even though you're going through the sifting, even though the enemy, even though the enemy is taking you through the sifting, even, even though what you're going through is something that you're not comfortable with, you don't have to worry about it because I prayed for you. And he didn't say that, that I prayed that the sifting wouldn't, uh, wouldn't happen because he understood that we needed the sifting to happen. See, there's some sifting in, that takes place in our life that we actually needed to happen in order to bring us to the point of being who God has called us to be. He said, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. He prayed that your faith fail not. Now, one of the things that we've been talking about in Thursday nights was faith. Uh, just this past Thursday night, we was talking about faith and how faith is a lot of times that we look at faith and we think about it as just believing in something, as that your faith is because you believe. But in reality, faith is more than just believing. Faith, faith is actually trusting in God. So it's in the middle of, your, of the sifting in the middle of your suffering, will you still trust God that he is God? Will you still trust God to step in the middle of your situation? Even though it seems like he hasn't answered your prayers yet, will you still trust God to answer them? So one of the times in my life where I had experienced, uh, and I, there's a few times in my life that I experienced sifting, but the one that I'm going to talk about today was when I was called to preach. So in, in 2012... I was at a revival one night, and Sister Glenette came up to me and said, I had a dream that you was preaching and what it, I think to be a rehab or something like that. And she said that I was preaching on freedom in Christ. I'll never forget it. And I said, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that don't sound like something God, like something I'm going to do. You sure that you saw me preaching the word of God? So then after that, I had a, Another lady, I was at a, I was at a Bible study, and uh, the, the, the Bible study ended in prayer, and then a woman started praying, and she started speaking in tongues, and then after she was done speaking in tongues, she said, God just told me that he's going to use your mouth to speak his words. I said, well, okay, all right. I'm starting to believe it maybe a little bit. So then I wondered, I said, well, I'm under a pastor. There's a shepherd of the house that I'm under. He ain't never told me that I'm supposed to preach. Maybe I should go to him and see whether or not I'm supposed to preach. So I went to pastor, and I said, pastor, I'm telling you, strange things keep happening to me. Like, people keep telling me that I'm going to be preaching one day, and, and I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know whether to believe it or not. 
And he walked me to the back of what was the usher's room uh, that day. And he said, yeah, me and my wife have known for some time that you've been called to preach, but we wasn't released to tell you. And I just said, wow, okay, so maybe this is what's, what's about to happen. And then I remember uh, Brother Jerry McNeely. As I was, he was somebody that used to go to our church to taught Sunday school up at the old building. I remember he had me come put some books away when he downstairs one day, and he asked me, have you ever thought about teaching? And I said, no, I mean, I have heard that maybe I'm supposed to, but I never really thought about I never really gave it too much thought. And he said, here, I'm going to give you this date Bible. I want you to take it home and start studying it. So I said, okay. He said, let me know what you think about it. So I studied it for like a month or two, and then I I brought it back to him and I said, here, I've I've been studying. This is a great Bible. I'm going to buy me one. And he said, no, you just keep that one. Don't worry about it. So I had all of these people telling me that that there's an opportunity, that that God's going to use me to preach his word. So then fast forward from 2012, from when the first time that I actually heard that I was going to preach to the first time that I preached a message. In 2014, I had an opportunity to go into the prison and preach and uh, I was so scared that I just told him, no, I can't go. And I felt so bad for doing that. I said, I, no, I, I, I don't think that I'm, I'm ready for this yet. I can't do it. And so I turned it down. And then I remember being uh, so uh, ashamed that I had made God upset. But God has spoke to me and said, I'm going to give you another chance. So now I remember talking to a friend of mine at work who was actually a pastor, and he said, uh, he said, have you ever thought about preaching? And I, said, I said, well, yeah, I have now. I've thought about it. And he said, uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what. You put together a message, and you let me know when you want to preach, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you in my pulpit and let you preach. I said, great. That sounds, that sounds great. I'll do that. So fast forward from 2012. So 20, January 4th, 2015 was when I preached my first message. Now, we can say that that was the most uh, exhilarating year that I've ever had, the, the most accomplished year that I've ever felt. It was the first time that I felt God actually used me to do something for him. And because of the greatness of the, of the call that was upon my life to preach, It wasn't shortly after that that I realized that the enemy had also realized that I was called to preach and the sifting started happening. I was in a marriage that was arguing all the time, fussing and fighting until finally it didn't make it. And it ended in divorce. And then I thought, wow, this is the church of God. I'll probably never be credentialed to preach in the church of God now. They They are sticklers against divorce. You better have a good reason why you got divorced. And it better not be your fault either. I was just, I was just lucky enough and blessed enough that, that I fought for the marriage. And they seen it as that it wasn't my fault uh, that it happened. But it was just something that had to happen. And so I'm in this turmoil and I'm in this sifting and I'm, I'm in this suffering and the, uh, uh, Satan is, is wishing to have me to sift me as wheat. Now, understand that, that the, the, the original word for sift in this context is an inward agitation to try one's faith to the verge of overthrow. So what the enemy is trying to do is overthrow my faith. 
by the arguments and the fussing and the fighting and everything that is going on. And it's all because I'm, it didn't start until I started preaching. And I feel like everything would have been fixed if I just stopped preaching. So that was 2015. Later on that year, I can remember, I can remember I was locked up. Of course, um, I don't hide that from anybody. I did some years in prison. And I, I used to have a little brother. I mean, you know, I still have him, but he just ain't here no more. And I can remember that he got locked up too, and he came to prison, and he was, in, he was my bunkie. That's what we called him, bunkie. This means he slept in the bed under me or over me because I was a big brother, so I got the bottom bunk. But he slept in the top bunk. All right. So, and I can remember one thing that he said to me at that time was he said that he, can re- he heard about all of the stuff that I was doing when I was out in sin, and he said, I wanted to be just like you. And I couldn't help but think I was the one that led him to where he was because he saw what I was doing and wanted to be just like me. So I can remember that at some point during that year we were talking and I I said to my little brother, I said, I know, I remember when you said you wanted to be just like me when I was doing those things that was in the streets and you ended up in prison just like I was in prison. But now I'm saved and I'm preaching the gospel. And I said, listen to me, Andre. If there's any time that you wanted to be like me, it's now. If there's any time you should want to be just like me, it's right now. Sifting. Sifting. Sifting means shaking in the sleeve. Shaking. The Bible says that everything that can be shaken will be shaken, and what cannot be shaken will remain. Sifting. I was in a sifting. And I'm telling you, I felt like if I would have just stopped preaching, that the sifting would have stopped too. So I can remember that 2015, still my greatest year, that I felt the greatest accomplishment of accomplished year that I had because it was the year that I started preaching for God. And I just didn't only preach one sermon. I, I had preached three sermons that year, and, and I never thought I'd preach one. So I, I felt real good about what God was doing in my life. And, and just as I was getting over the divorce and, and, uh, and things were starting to look up, I remember my little brother had gotten a job. Had gotten a new car. Well, it wasn't new, but it was new to him. And everything was even looking up for him. And he said to me, he called me one day. He said, bro, I, I, I get my check Friday, but we ain't got nothing to eat today. I said, cool, I'll be up there. So I went to McDonald's. I bought him a bunch of food. 
I took it up there, and I remember standing out there talking to him, and it was a Wednesday night, I remember, because I had to be, I was on my way to Wednesday night service. That's when we had a regular Wednesday night service. Talked to him for a little bit, and he was telling me about his car and how his brakes had got fixed, and he, he said to me, he said that uh, David, one of our, one of the people that used to live on our street, or used to live, that still lives on the street we used to live on, that David had fixed his brakes, and, and when David fixed his brakes, he said they were down to nothing. I don't even know how you was riding around. You could have been in an accident. So he was feeling real grateful. So, so he said that, yes, God was protecting me while I was driving this car because the brakes wasn't any good to stop me. And then he said to me, he said, I'm going to church Sunday. He said, God is good to me. I'm going to church Sunday. This was Wednesday. This was Wednesday night. He said, I'm going to church on Sunday because God's been good to me. And then the sifty. Oh, my gosh. And then the sifty. Because then I got a call Friday, two days later, and they told me that my little brother had been shot. Sifty. So I went up. He said, come up to the They wouldn't tell me how. Or what had happened over the phone. They said, just come up here to this address up on the hill in Steubenville. So I went, and I had found out that my little brother had taken his own life. And I can remember asking God, he had just talked about Wednesday, going to church on Sunday, about how good you had. How could he go from knowing how good you was, and then two days later taking his own life? Sifting. If that wasn't bad enough when I went to church on Sunday, pastor preached a salvation message. Now I'm really mad at God. Because my little brother would have been here to receive that, that message. He may have came up to the altar to receive the salvation message to give his life to Jesus. Because he had just said Wednesday that he was coming to church. And it's not every time that pastor, you know you're here. Every week he doesn't give us a salvation altar call. Neither did he up there. Some preachers do, but our pastor don't. Not every week he preaches on different things. So there's different altar calls to go with his message, which is great. But that particular week, he gave a message on salvation and gave a salvation altar call sifting so that what seemed like the greatest year of my life ended up in being one of the hardest years of my life because of the sifting but I'm glad that Jesus told Simon that even in the middle of the sifting, I don't want you to worry about the sifting because he said that I have prayed for you. And I believe that the only reason that I made it through that was because Jesus was up on the throne. The Bible says that he is able to save them to the uttermost to come unto God by him, being he ever lived, to make intercession for them. And I believe that Jesus was interceding for me in the middle of my sifting. I believe that Jesus was praying for me in the middle of my trial. I believe that Jesus was praying for me in the middle of my persecution. 
in the middle of my sifting, Jesus was praying for me. You want to come up here? We're going to call it into this service. So one of the things that Jesus prayed about, because I want to help somebody else, because there's somebody in here right now that's going through some sifting. I can remember that going back to that day, I, I, I remember that it was a couple weeks later that I had to preach in a prison. And I remember that they thanked me just for coming because they realized, he said, we understand if you don't want to preach. And I said, no, I already did that. I already turned God down once. I ain't doing that again. I understand that what I just went through is traumatic. I understand that what I just went through is hard. But I understand that, that my faith isn't going to fail because Jesus has been praying for me. And that I'm still going to get out and do what God has called me to do in the midst of my trials and in the midst of my struggles and in the midst of everything that the enemy is bringing against me. Because the Bible says that, that what the enemy meant for my bad, God can turn it around and use it for my good. Sifting. So he said to him, I pray that your faith fail not. Really, when you read that scripture, the reason why I tell you that every believer is going to come through a point of sifting in their lives. Because really, when you read that scripture, it says, Simon Peter, the, the devil wished to have you to sift you as wheat. But the word you there is actually plural. So it is believed that Jesus was really saying that he wished to have all of the disciples to sift them as wheat. So the reason why I tell you that when you devote your life to Christ and when you really get in line with his word and you, you start walking according to his will, there's going to be a sifting that comes. Because the enemy can, sit, can sense that there's something great about to happen in your life. The enemy can sense that God is using you in a way that is going to benefit the kingdom of God. So what he wants to do is he wants to stop you before you even get to that point. So he starts sifting you. Go ahead, sis. Whenever you're ready, you can start. I love when you play that thing. And then the next encouraging thing that Jesus says after that, and he's, he's, he said, when you are converted, I told you that there was a time that I was mad at God because it was a salvation message. He was coming to church. On, now I don't know whether he's saved or not. I'll be surprised if I see him when I get there, but I'll be happy nonetheless. How could he not make it to that service? It almost seemed that the service was tailor-made for him. He just said on Wednesday that he was going there. Two days later, he took his own life. So I was upset with God. And one of the things that Jesus said to Simon is he said, when you are converted. Now we understand that converted, uh, that Simon was already converted. He was following Jesus for years. 
So what that word converted means is when you have turned around. It's almost the same definition as when you repent. So I was mad at God, but God said, when I turned around, when I changed my mind, when I met Tanoya, when I changed my mind and my perspective about what happened in this situation, he said, then I'm going to give you enough strength. And once you get that strength, you can strengthen your brothers and sisters. So this morning, what I want to do is strengthen you. Because I've been strengthened to do it. If there's somebody in here that you've been feeling a sifting going on and it's challenging your faith and it's making you feel like God isn't hearing your prayers and you're ready to give up and you're ready to quit and you're ready to throw in the towel. I came to give you this message to let you know that Jesus and I have prayed that your faith doesn't fail you, that you continue to trust God in the midst of your situation. It doesn't matter what hell the devil is trying to take you through. Because what the book of Job teaches me is that he can only take you as far as God will allow him. When Satan acquired about Job, he said you can do anything you want. Just don't touch his life. I want somebody to know, somebody in here to know this morning that you serve a God. Who will strengthen you in your time of trial. Who will strengthen you in your time of persecution. You may not understand why you're going through what you're going through. You may not understand why it's happening, what is happening. But can I tell you that even though it's happening, that God is still on your side. That God is still present in your life. As a matter of fact, I wasn't going to do this scripture, but I want to do it anyway since I already gave it to you. Can you put up Jeremiah 29 and 11 real fast? The thing that I want you to understand is what happened before this chapter, before this verse happened. God had told the Israelites that you're going to be slaves for 70 years. He says you're going to go into captivity and you're going to be slaves and nobody wants to be a slave to somebody else. He says, but what I want you to do is I want you to build houses and vineyards and I, I, I don't want you to decease in the land. So I want you to have children and, and marry and give in marriage and I, I want you to grow and multiply as a people. And it's going to be a time in your life in those 70 years that you're going to question me. That's what God is saying. You're going to question why I'm doing what I'm doing or why I'm allowing to happen what I'm allowing to happen. See, we throw this scripture around without any, without any background to it, without noticing what God means. This is actually a hard thing that the people were going through. So then he said, even after those 70 years, 
that you're going to be in captivity, I want you to know one thing. Even after that time that you're going to be questioning me, whether or not I'm there for you, whether I'm hearing your prayers, whether I'm answering your prayers, even though you're not going to understand why it's happening the way that it's happening, this is what I want you to know. I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To bring you into an expected end. Because the truth of the matter is, faith isn't faith until it's tested. So if there's somebody in here right now that your faith is being tested, but this message has strengthened you, that you're not going to allow the enemy to make you question God and his motives. But that you're going to believe that God is still good. No matter what's going on in my life, I serve a good, good God. Jesus said that we would suffer just as he suffered. He promised us suffering. But the Bible says in, in, in Romans 8 and 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That in this light affliction that happens but for a moment, working for us and an eternal and exceeding far weather, uh, uh, far greater weight and glory. In Psalms 19, the psalmist said, I was glad that I was afflicted. Because then I can learn your statue. I want to keep preaching, but I ain't. Because I was only supposed to go 15 minutes. I that's my minutes or not. <laughs> I'll, trust me, I want to keep preaching, but I ain't. As long as that keyboard is playing. So if there's somebody in here. This altar is open. I ain't going to pray over you. I'm going to keep my distance because I come down with some kind of bug. But we do have a prayer team. They'll come up here and pray you through your situation. One of the things that we heard throughout all three of these messages, basically, is how God is faithful things that Brother Ryan thought was mountains really wasn't. They were molehills. Israel realized that as long as I press forward to the prize of the high calling of God, no matter what's going on in my life, I'm going to continue to press forward. And no matter how much the enemy starts, tries to sift me, I understand that Christ has prayed for me and that he will strengthen me. And that not only will he strengthen me for me, but he'll strengthen me for everybody that's connected to me. So there's some situations that your family is watching how you react to it. Because you're the Christian. You're the believer for all them years that told them how good God is. And now that it ain't going your way, you're falling apart. 
Let go and let God. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. Can I get somebody up here from the prayer team to pray for her?